In IT, the fast life is the VAR life. Value-added reseller. If you work for a VAR as an engineer, the value being added is you. Projects and customer meetings, deadlines, and bills of material, RFP responses, and trying to turn the promises of sales unicorns into an actual design you can install for the customer. All of us on the show today have worked for VARs at one time or another, and we thought we'd run down the good, the bad, and the ugly of the VAR life on this episode of the Data Knots Podcast. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Data Knots, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Data Knots underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and I am no good by myself, and that calls for our tame co-host. Some say that he writes PowerShell modules in his sleep, and that GitHub automatically chooses his merge request over anyone else's in the event of a conflict. And all I know is he's called Chris Wall, at Chris Wall on the Twitters. Woo! All right. And our guest today, Eric Gullickson. Eric, you're an enterprise architect for Vortex Optics, and uh, you and I were kicking this around on Slack, I think, this idea of the good, the bad, and the ugly of working for a VAR, because uh, as we were talking just before the show, I guess you've still got some a little bit of VAR crust on you from uh, from 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 some experiences. Yeah. I mean, there's there, that's a side of the world that I don't think many people really see. Maybe if you work in an enterprise, you don't really get to peek behind the curtain and see what goes on in the VAR life. So... We had some interesting dialogue around there's a lot of good, there's some bad, and then there's some ugly. And there's some ugly. Well, let's start with the good, man. Uh, I mean, as you reflect back on your time at a VAR, what were some of the positive things, things that you liked? When you work at a VAR, you really have access to the latest and greatest technology because the manufacturers, they really want the VARs to blaze the trail. They're the first people to get hands on it. They want those engineers to get it in their labs, to get it installed. They give you certification help. They really have a vested interest in like your education and your certification around the new products. Yeah, exactly. They got that vested interest because if you know the product and if you're confident in what the product can do because you went to all the trouble to certify, et cetera, you can sell the product and you can install it successfully at the customer site. So, right, that's a good thing. You get to keep up with with the latest and greatest and, and the cutting edge stuff, really. Yeah, they well, give you access to their labs and all of that demo equipment. I think it's worth taking a moment, though. We have the curse of knowledge, right? Let's take a step back because there's different roles you can hold within a VAR that some of these truths will hold to be evident and some will not. I guess in my mind, it's you're either focused on pre-sales, which means that you're supporting the account reps that are looking to go out and find customers. And you're the engineering talent that takes the spaghetti design that they put together and try to make it real. And you're <laughs> compensated based on what's sold. And usually there's percentages and, and bookings targets that come into play. And then there's post-sales or professional services that are on the other end of the spectrum where you get to take what the SE, the sales engineer, and the rep put together which was some level of spaghetti design, something that's kind of meant more to meet, you know, what the bundle is or what the deal is. And then you have to actually install, configure, you know, kind of put that all together for the customer. And in some cases, a third bucket where you're kind of in the middle, you're doing consulting work with the effort of trying to build a design so that a customer buys it and through your VAR, but you're not held to a sales cycle. What do we, what do we think we're going to focus on mostly for good here? Is this more like professional services or the sales engineering side? I just okay. So before I answer that question, uh, you know, my my opinion <laughs> is it depends on the size of the bar. So if you're at a really large bar, then yes, there are all those 
distinct roles and functions. If you work for a smaller VAR, which I did, then you tend to do all of those things. So for example, I was pre-sales and I was implementations. So I was uh, working with the salesperson to drop the design, figure out the customer requirements, put together the bill of materials. And then when all of that stuff came in, I was also the person that was getting all of the stuff to the customer, unbox, set it up, uh, work with the customer on the install. So that that's also yet a different way to look at it. If you go for a small bar, you might be doing all the things. Too. The roles so. are still there. It's just yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hats. Yeah. So I think that's that. That's something we needed to to focus on too. Because if you're going obviously on the pre-sales track, that tends to be you'd have to be a mile wide and an inch deep because you have to cover so many technologies. And as I think as you go to work for a larger firm, you can start to specialize. But if there's five people, you're not going to be just the X person unless the only thing your VAR focuses on is you know Cisco as an example versus post-sales where it's the certification hamster wheel and you're constantly being told to focus on getting higher and higher level certs and knowing being an SME or a subject matter expert of these specific technologies. And that's the world you work in. But the scale obviously does affect it. Yeah. So Eric, did you have a, a, a draw or a, an opinion on, you know, pre-sales or, or post-sales and, and where the certs and the attention there tends to go? Yeah. I mean, you guys really echoed where I came from too. I worked at all sorts of different size VARs. So they had the structured roles where you had pre-sales, post-sales, all of that. I leaned heavily on the post-sales. So I was on that certification hamster wheel. Last go around, I think I'm on my fifth VMware VCAP. Okay. So you were in essence, one of the people being sold like, oh yes. And when we sell you the solution, a certified individual is going to walk in the door and do magical things with the power of certification and install the solution. Yeah. Most of the time I was, that was that guy. I don't like that phrasing. though. <laughs> Let's not talk about selling people for services. Like you're definitely hiring them for that reason. But going to the actual point that I wanted to, to talk about here, you know, Eric, you talked about all the certifications and the hands-on technology exposure. I think that's really focused on the post-sales side for a couple reasons. I mean, the, the biggest one is they're trying to get deal registration, and that comes with having certain levels of certification, which means you have so many people that are certified at some kind of level. But also the benefit to you, I think, or at least when I was going through it, was like, you don't have to pay for any of these things. Some companies make you pay if you fail, but not if you pass. And some you know, give you like so many crosses off the, uh, off the belt of failures before they start charging you. But <laughs> yep. you go from like being able to afford one or two a year to like literally once a month, if that's yep. what your fancy desires, you know, and it's yep. a lot of money. Exactly. Like I've gotten, I don't think I've had to pay for a certification out of my pocket in like 10 years. Hmm. Cause like you said, I, every place I've worked, it's been one or multiple failures they'll pay for. And if you can't pass it in three attempts, well, you might want to reconsider what certification. <laughs> yeah. Whereas just about every enterprise I've worked for, if I wanted to do a cert, that was on me. I was out of pocket for not all, but many of those certification adventures I went on. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear about that from folks that are listening. If you're working in the enterprise or, or you know, kind of the end user, the customer side of business, how that works for you. Because the places I worked, I had to pony up the money first and then submit the passing score to them to be reimbursed for the certification. And when you're looking at something like VCAPs and whatnot, you know, it's hundreds of dollars. That's the VMware Advanced Professional and the VCIX is the, the new version. of it. But anyways, you know, the more advanced stuff, CCMP, that becomes pretty expensive. So having someone that's willing to pony up on that on the front end and also is like, if you're hungry for certs and you want to go after a ton of them, they support that. Like that's pretty groovy. If that's your goal, I think of our, you know, this is kind of the good discussion of Vardom. That's definitely a place you want to start attacking from your yeah. career perspective. 
Yeah, if that's your goal, the euphoric place to be is at a bar. Mm-hmm. I like the way you put the euphoric. <laughs> well, especially if you're young in the game and you're you're new to uh, networking or storage or whatever your your chosen discipline is, what a quick way to to ramp up and get capable you know, really fast without having to spend a lot of money. If you've got the time and the energy to make it happen, that's a great place to be. Eric, what else uh, other than certifications, if you're uh, – well, I think we decided a post-sales or an implementation engineer is really where that focus is. But what, what are the other advantages, some of the other advantages you liked about working for a VAR? Uh, I'd say one of the other advantages of working for a VAR is the plethora of different businesses you get to work with. Every type you could think of from manufacturing to healthcare to higher education to services, all of that. Yeah, which you wouldn't think that matters, but you begin to understand how these different businesses work and how they rely on their technology to get their business done. When I worked for Avar, many of my customers were all over the place, Eric, just like you were describing. So I worked for a company that made Beanie Babies. I worked for a company that manufactured printers. Uh, I worked for uh, just a variety of different companies. So I, I, in one day, I'd be in right in a high school, you know, working on their land infrastructure. And another day I'd be working on a server and setting up backup for somebody. Another day I'd be on a factory floor working on the fiber optic cabling deployment and just all the different requirements and what uptime and downtime was allowed and how they thought about money and the longevity of their technology made you realize every time I walk in, yeah, everybody uses the same technology, but the way they implement it and their requirements are, are different, make you ask different questions as you walk into different places and, and think from a business perspective about how that technology is being used. Yeah, exactly. The one that comes to my mind is when we had to do the network for a food processing company, you don't think about the temperatures that the equipment has to work under until you put it in a freezer. Now you got to, oh, all right. Uh, does this switch operate at this low of temperature 24-7? Is that how you figured it out, though? You just put it in and, and just like just watch it? Yeah, like, oh, pretty it broke. <laughs> hey, yeah, it's moving kind of slow or it's not blinking, right? No, no, that's, I mean, I know that I know the temp stuff are posted on there, but yeah, it's not something that you typically come up with. I know for me, I really focused on healthcare and finance, uh, so a lot of banking. It was definitely interesting to me what was considered like within regulation and what was considered personal identifying information and what wasn't and having to get special stickers applied to my laptop and register my Mac address with like different data centers to be allowed into man traps. It's just like all, all this, you know, craziness to, I was like, dude, I'm just here to, you know, install this piece of gear. Just let me in. <laughs> yeah. Those double door man traps were always exciting on the various yeah. different data centers on how they did it. I always thought at some point one is going to malfunction and, and either crush me or I just, I would be stuck inside yeah. forever. Has was- not happened yet though. So yeah, there was one knock, in a suburb of Chicago that it was like almost a revolving door without the centerpiece, and you walked into it, and it's very cramped that I got the exact same feeling, like, I'm going to get stuck in here. I'm going to be stuck in this tube. What a horrible way to go. Speaking of horrible way to go, what about interacting with end users? I'm assuming it's mostly dealing with kind of like IT staff and not uh, having to like go reset printers and install laptops and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I rarely had to deal with the actual end users. It was always interacting with the systems administrators. The closest you'd get would be help desk staff. If you had a VDI project, you'd walk them through their normal process, but rarely did you have to have to go out and deal with, oh, you know, my printer doesn't work. Yeah, I guess that would depend again on the VAR and, and the kind of contracts that they want in some place. I think this is pretty old school, but there are some VARs that you're the remote help desk support or your company is. 
And so sometimes you might get called to go out and fix a printer because Bob's country hotel there uh, over by the highway has uh, got a problem with the registration system, can't print stuff, and they have a break-fix contract with you. And so you're the one that gets dispatched because you don't happen to be out and about. You were in the office that day. Go to Bob's country, whatever I said it was, and uh, oh, yeah. know, fix the printer. So that can happen. Ethan, yeah. that sounds horrible. Why would you do that as a job? Like that, that's not what I wanted. I don't know. You can pick your VAR, man. You don't have to work for Bob's Old Country Buffet Hotel. Like you can do what you want. Yep. And that's the that's actually the point. You, if you're considering shopping for a VAR, make sure you understand the sorts of contracts that they get and the kind of work that they do. Or you might end up, as I found myself a time or two, in the bowels of an HP printer looking at a manual going, I wasn't trained for this. Why am I doing this? This is awful. PC load letter. Yeah, exactly. If the VAR has what they call an MSP or a managed services partner, basically that does those white glove type services, depending how they structure that, you could end up doing the PC load letter repair. (laughs) I remember one VAR I worked for sent a CCIE out to plug in a network cable because he was on the system as a network person and they needed network work. So wait, this is supposed to be the good of our of our life. Like yeah. um, let's go back to good stuff. Let's, let's talk like work schedule yeah, or we pay or something off, like that. Kind yeah, of came off the rails. Good. It's too easy to go into the bad. <laughs> no, the work schedule's uh, great. Yeah. I mean the flexible work schedule is I never had an eight to five. You could schedule your time at customers around your own personal life and what you needed to get done. I worked with one guy that he left his house at seven thirty in the morning and he was home at five. Every day. That's how his day went. Really? So, yeah. Hmm. No matter where they sent him to go work, if that meant he got there at 1030 and he left at 2, that's what he did. I can identify with the flexible work schedule because it really depended a lot on where I was scheduled. If I had customer appointments lined up, I could be on the road all day and I could be on the road a long way too, just depending on where it was. We had a pretty big footprint that we covered. But at the same time, if there wasn't anything going on, I just might be hanging around the office, leave a little bit early, take a longer lunch break, all depending on what needed to get done. But if there wasn't time to be billed, then yeah, I had lots of flexibility there. But it also, I don't know, there were times I could work from home. That was some flexibility as well. Times I could be doing lab work. But then sometimes not. Sometimes the project schedules were just like, okay, you got to get this done because we already sold you into another place to go. And uh, so as soon as you're done this one, I got to send you over to this other new customer and get going on that project. So, Yeah, when you have a good project manager, I've worked with some really great project managers at VARS, and they're, they're able to maintain that balance. The ones I worked at, I mostly worked out of my house. So the best way I describe it to people is I was like one of the hitmen in the Jason Bourne series. They'd call me up, <laughs> I'd go kill the problem, and then I'd come home. And that's, <laughs> that was my go bag. Yeah. Yeah. Go bag. And the burner, yeah, exactly. Burner phone, hop in a burner car, get it done. Okay, so in that kind of role, did you get paid pretty well for that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's another thing in the VAR life is the compensation is usually quite good. They structure base salaries quite well. There's usually a decent bonus structure. No, I've seen bonuses get where it's up into the 30s and 40 percentage based on profitability of the company because that's where the, the sales come in. The better they do, the more they help you out. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm reflecting on that one because, again, it depends on the VAR. That's another depends on the VAR, yeah. question to go in armed and, and, and really 
ask what the compensation structure is like. Sometimes it could depend on how many certifications you have. Sometimes it can depend on hours that you're billing and they may put a lot of pressure on you to bill hours. But some VARs are really look out for their engineers. You know, I've heard different stories, just all depending. So Yeah, I knew of one where the certification bonus was actually on your salary. It wasn't a one-time spiff. That actually was a bump in your salary. Well, that's the thing. I think if you're looking to enter this world and you're like, okay, how can I increase the pay range or like the the, the targeted OTE, the on-target earnings, I found it's really a function of what is the billable target per week or per month or whatever, you know, they want you to do 32 hours, 35 hours, hit 90%, you know, whatever that number is, and make sure that's something that matches your sanity level, as well as uh, usually the best way to make more money, especially on the post-sales side is travel. So the more flexible you are with travel, the higher the percentage that you're willing to take under your belt, you know, 50 plus percent travel, the more they just kind of have to pay you because it gets really Mm. tough to find people that are willing to be on the road. 75% 75% of the time, if not more. You know, definitely yeah, and the, includes a lot of people. The travel part too is that means that you're you're working in the specific customers, like you are working in the higher end enterprises because you're willing to travel to them and they're not usually all congregated in one area. Yeah, that's fair. And that's that's different from residencies. And you know, I, I wanna for those that may have heard you like, oh, you're on site, you're working at a customer for like twelve weeks at a stint. Those are horrible. Avoid those at all costs. But uh, if you're just working with a customer, you know, uh, two different customers a week, three different customers a week, flying around doing whatever it is that you're doing, and basically you're home Saturday and Sunday for like three weeks straight, there's a premium to that. So if you're in that world, you know, like ask for more money. You can you can make it because it's hard to find people that do that. Another thought pops to mind here, Eric, which is uh, you know as a, as a pro of working for a virus, some of the people you get to work with. So going all the way back to the very first fire I ever worked for, as Chris would be fond to to tell me, was decades ago. Banks, you're old. Um, I I, you, I was doing a lot of Novell work, and I got to work with someone who was top notch in Novell. If I had questions, this person had the answers. They were absolutely phenomenal doing Novell installs and you get to learn a lot quickly from fellow engineers who can do uh, do brain dumps and fill your head with all the things you might need to know uh, about a given install. It was just a fantastic way to get knowledge and then if you had a problem you got stumped on, a lot of times that person would be a, a great resource to help get you out of a bind uh, that, that you might find yourself in with a customer. Yeah, I totally agree with that. The heroes without capes all work at VARs. I mean, I've worked with some of the smartest people I've met. They're the quiet people. They're not on social media. They're not very vocal. One guy, speaking of the certification train, I mean, he was smart enough to get the CCIE and the JNCIE. He's one of the best network guys I've met, but you wouldn't have met him unless you worked for a VAR or worked with that VAR. Same with pretty much everything. I've met the smartest VMware people, some of the best project managers, like you name it. And there's probably someone who excels at it higher than you had ever imagined working at a VAR. I got to say, I like the euphoric pursuit of certifications at a VAR. I definitely went after 20 or more per year and loved it because I've always been a cert junkie, or at least I used to be. And that's how I got the VCDX as well. The uh, the bar I was working for was really nice to pay for everything, including the travel, because they believed in me and knew that it would help the company in the long run. So yeah, if you're after the certs, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I did it, and I think it's a perfectly valid way to go uh, when you're working at a bar. 
What's on your mind, Ethan? For me, the deal is that uh, not all VARs are the same. So if you think you want to get into the VAR life and, and be some kind of a VAR engineer, make sure you shop carefully as you interview at these different places. Ask a lot of hard questions about what life is like. And then see if you can get some, I guess I'd call them sidecar conversations going. Figure out who works there and see if they can give you an honest estimation of what it's really all about. And with that insider information, that might help you make a decision about whether or not it's a good idea to work for that VAR or not. Some VARs have a great rep and some really don't. All right, Eric and, and Ethan and, and your old Novell days, you know, pour a little like Novell liquor out under the floor. Let's talk about the, the not so good parts. We alluded to them a little bit, but I mean, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is like you are a bludgeon of sorts for generating profit. Like that's what you are. You have to accept that. And I don't know, you have, you have like, this is your time. You've been allotted 20 hours, 40 hours, 60 hours, whatever it is that's been billed and sold to the customer. That's how long you have to do it. You didn't necessarily have any part of that decision-making process, right? It's just like, this needs to get done. Here's the time frame for it. Here's what was sold. Go. I, I imagine you can share a few thoughts on that and stories and whatnot. I certainly can. But there's definitely a lot of repercussions if you don't hit that target, both career-wise and for your company. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does come back to that statement by Ethan that it depends on the VAR. If you have a good architect and a good SE that put this solution together for the post-sales people, then those numbers are spot on. You can do it in the allotted time, get it done, move on to the next one. But if they decided to underscope it because the budget was a little tight, now all of a sudden it becomes your problem that you can't, you know, install a V block in 20 hours. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because I do agree that the, the better PMs, reps, SEs, et cetera, would put together better designs, like more realistic designs, but also just having done a research on how the human brain works, we as a species are horrible at estimating. Like when it comes to project estimations, if you look at most, especially the mega projects, you know, the stuff that's really big, we're talking north of like two to 3 million, if not, you know, 20 plus million dollars type deals where there's just literally no chance at being right, if not 40% off as far as time estimates and stuff go. The kind of annoying part is that you're now the frontline person that's with those people and those people that you're working with at the enterprise may not even really know that this is coming. You might literally be the bus that is coming in there and driving, you know, recklessly, so to speak, because you were put in that position. And so having the tact and kind of the personality to like keep things as smooth and friendly as possible is like the untechnical skill or the non-technical skill that really separates the wheat from the chaff. Oh, wow. You're just giving me some flashbacks of when <laughs> going into a customer and I can't, <laughs> I forgot how many times I've been asked, why did I buy this? And I had to come up with some answer on the spot that did not paint the reseller in a bad plate. Because I'm like, I have no idea why you bought this. <laughs> Look over there, an ostrich. And then you <laughs> run away. <laughs> yeah. That's what, really, when I worked with the post-sales folks, you know, the implementation and, and PS teams, the major skill, if you were to boil it down, like the one thing that allows you to progress career-wise in that is thinking on your feet and be able to like be really suave and understand all the political ramifications of what's going on. So that when you're there, you're an ambassador and you're continuing to sell kind of the brand and the, and the yes. idea. And no even if something is wrong in, with it, yeah. Know <laughs> yeah, when to know. back off, know when to be sensitive, know when to keep your mouth shut, know how to delicately phrase things that doesn't overcommit or overpromise and at the same time isn't lying and trying to it's, – it's, it is a skill. It really is a skill. <laughs> yeah, they should have a certification around deflection like – 
all right, I'm going to deflect this to something else. Like, no, wait, there's that ostrich. And for those listening, I mean, an example, a fictitious example, you know, like, let's say the sales team put together something and you personally think it's not a great idea. Like you were just totally vehemently against this design and the customer asks you point blank, you know, what do you think? You could just say, this is garbage. I can't believe they put it in. And then just everything's going to suck for you and, and your company. And you basically let the cat out of the bag, how horrible it is. I think just having the understanding that you don't know all the factors and that you say, you know what? I wasn't involved with the design, but I, I hear what you're saying about this. I'm going to take it back to the rep and the engineer, and I will get answers for you. And like the, that's just one example of a way to like handle a situation that I don't think gets talked about a lot. Usually it's like certs and tech and nerd stuff and not like the soft skills that, that are a challenge. No, and then, and then when you have those conversations back with the people that sold the solution, you, you have to figure out – was there a legitimate reason, you know, and then discern the, the truth of it and then be able to present that truth in a way that doesn't alienate your customer if maybe yeah. there wasn't a great reason they got sold it because being oversold happens all the time. Well, I found a lot of times there is a there is a reason. You may not like the reason and it may actually be kind of ugly. You're like, oh, that was not the best, but I get it. We were in a corner. There was something that just kind of like – I don't think the folks that you're working with on the pre-sales side are ever purposely trying to sabotage you. Obviously, they want the customer to be happy with what is sold and they want it to be successful once it's been implemented. But you might just be missing those bits of information. And so there's usually a reason somewhere. You just may not like it. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that. But that's another – it really highlights another thing that's – a. I think it's a negative of working for Avara at times, which is you as the implementation engineer, the person that's installing all this thing, you are a lot of times in the middle of this thing. You got the, the manufacturer, the vendor that wants to sell you something. You got the salesman that wants to sell everything all the time because they got, you know, this new BMWs are out and it's time. You got, you know, distribution channels involved. You got the end customer with their needs trying to save money and wanting to get the most for their purchase because technology is a huge investment. And then there you are trying to, keep everybody happy or sometimes getting stuck implementing a solution that maybe wasn't the best thing for the customer, at least from your viewpoint. And that can be a, for me, it was a, a frustrating place to be at times. Yeah. I mean, it was from my experience that always came back to the the dirty little secret around deal registration, which people probably have heard rumblings about that from various people. And you should what define that, that. Like just explain yeah. what that is for folks. Yeah. yeah. So deal registration is where, the manufacturer, say Juniper, Cisco, VMware, whoever, they want to help protect the incumbent VAR because they've built that relationship and they've you know sold their products before. So just because somebody on the help desk you know Googled Citrix and VMware, then they decided to call up VMware for something else, they're not going to let it go to just any other VAR. So they have this thing called a deal registration where the incumbent gets preferential pricing. And what happens then is if you get two resellers trying to sell the same product, now it becomes a battle on how do you actually meet that price? Who do they want to work with? So with the salespeople, typically what they'll do is they'll, they have their preferred products and if they can't sell one, they'll sell the other. And that's where us in the trenches don't understand like, oh, well, well, why did this person buy a Mercedes Benz instead of a BMW? It's like, well, BMW and Audi were both registered by a different partner, so we couldn't sell them, so they had to buy the Benz. I'll give you a different angle on that. Um, I was working for a VAR that was on the way out. The The company owner was taking it taking it down so he could retire. More, more. I'll spare the rest of the details, but 
what was happening was we were a registered Cisco partner at the time. I was the engineering manager. And as we would meet with Cisco, they would talk about deals that they were, that they, Cisco, were farming out to various partners. And they're like, oh, we'll give you this deal, that deal. And then I'd come to find out, no, the deal had gone to this other partner. The deal had gone to this other VAR. What's happening? What's going on? You know, and I found out digging around that the owner of the VAR I was at had pissed off so many people within Cisco that Cisco just didn't want to deal with them anymore as the guy was doing doing awful things, you know, behind the scenes with money. And that's you can be victimized by that. Exactly. That's where it gets there's multiple layers to that cake where all right, now your salespeople have to have a good relationship with the Cisco salespeople so that the Cisco salespeople will give you that deal registration. Because if they don't like each other, now all of a sudden it becomes, oh, well, they're not going to give it to you for X, Y, Z. There's a lot of layers until you get to the actual like solving the problem <laughs> <laughs> with technology. I don't, I, don't, yeah. I don't suppose a lot of folks really see that side of it. But, you know, the kind of the example that y'all were, were hitting on is co-selling, you know, where the, the vendor will co-sell a product or a solution on behalf or with the partner that, that's, that's, you know, that's selling it. And so there's just a lot of, there's a lot of different ways to get in there. There's a lot of deals that are put together in a way that it's based on, you know, because it's based off relationships. And I guess we're lumping that in the bad, but I would say at the same time, if you know and trust someone, wouldn't you want to work with them over someone you don't know? So it's not all like bro deals and handshakes, although that does occur. Some of it's just, this customer is extremely important to me. We've built a relationship for a long time. I was the first one to kind of bring them to this new solution and put it in. And therefore, I've built the relationship with all the partners and all the vendors that are supplying that solution as, as me, the VAR man or woman. And so that may be why this is going down. They know this person takes care of what's going on and has a, has a proven track record. Uh, the bad side of that is when you get the Maytag man sales team where they just literally have been selling to the same account for a decade. And there's no question as to you know trying to get another VAR involved or trying to like spice things up a bit. You may be dealing with this as a customer if you're listening to the show. Or it's like, why do we keep buying this old junk over and over and over again? It's like, well, they just they've been working together for so long, you know, the the, the partner in the VAR that one of them is going to have to like quit or move or something major is going to have to happen. You know, this new CIO is brought in wants to shake up the house because that's the kind of the bad side of those relationships when they when they don't really serve any other purpose beyond the relationship themselves. Yeah, and I can say from now working on the customer side, you actually own all the power. Whether you personally in your where you fit in your organization, whether you make those decisions or not, but you as the customer can tell them what you want to buy from who you want to buy. They may push back on it, but at the end of the day, you're going to just buy something else if they don't, you know, if they don't come to the table. And that's actually what I did when I came to this customer because the VAR I left is, I really like them. They're a good VAR. So I wanted to buy the stuff through them. Well, the manufacturer didn't want to do that. So I just told them, I'm like, either you're going to let me buy it through them or I'm going to buy something else. And they called my bluff and we bought something else. Hmm. As a VAR engineer, Eric, what was your stress level? I mean, did it affect your personal life or your health or was it not so bad? I would say there were, there were times, um, there were times where it would affect your personal life and your health. There again, it depends on the VAR and the situation and who your project managers are and whatnot. If you have good project managers that manage that work-life balance where they don't schedule the projects on top of each other so that you're overlapping <laughs> and getting calls from one customer while you're at another customer, like that gets super stressful. But there again, if, if you're in a good time, 
then it is some of the lowest stress I've ever had. But yeah, from the health side of things, I can tell you I put on the most weight when I was <laughs> a, a consultant because I put it this way, go out for lunch every single day, order off the menu, realize you do not have to pay for it yourself and tell me you're going to order the salad. There's a lot of time spent in a Gibson steakhouse when you're in the, in the bar world. <laughs> a lot of steakhouses, yeah. Yeah, you, t- ask, you ask them, you're like, you look over at the manufacturer, whoever's paying the bill, and you're like, oh, so what's good here? And they pick out, you know, the, the $140 tomahawk, and you're like, oh, all right, I know where my limits are. Hearing about, like, stress in personal life, I'll say I had a, an interesting story where I was doing a, a week-long deployment out in Phoenix, and this is back when I lived in Chicago. So I finished the Phoenix deployment and I'm, I'm on my way back a flight from, from Phoenix to Chicago and the uh, port side engine caught fire due to a lack of, of oil. Like basically the friction amounted to the point where the engine caught fire. And uh, so I just looked to my look out the way I'm on the window side and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of black smoke coming out of the engine. And you hear like a woomph and we had to, to an emergency landing in Sioux Falls. And uh, basically the national guard came in and gave us cots cause there was no hotel. So I slept the night in a cot inside of the airport that had nothing other than vending machines and caught a flight the next morning at like 10 or so with a new plane. Basically lost my weekend because of that. That was like Friday night through Saturday. And so there's times where it's like, you know what, that's just the job. And you just lost your weekend because that Sunday I had to fly out for another customer. So I basically got in that night, slept, washed my clothes, caught another flight the next morning. And uh, it's extremely stressful on your body, on your, your, your mental health, your relationship. And uh, that's just kind of like, well, you don't, you don't get to just not go to that next engagement. You still got to go. You still got to make it there because you've, you've given your, you know, your, your bond, if you will, to go to the next location, do that install. Uh, everybody's very sympathetic, but that's kind of the lifestyle. So I felt like mm-hmm. it was a lot of stress. When it was good, yeah, things were great. But when it was bad, like that was a pretty, that was one of those moments where I'm like, man, this sucks. Like this yeah. is, I've never had to sleep in a cot in an airport before. I will never do it again. I will rent a car and sleep in the trunk if I have to next time. Cause that was, was horrible. I was away from home for 21 days straight that way. And that's why I was, I was single at the time. I don't think I could have maintained a relationship during that time, but yeah, those, those stories are pretty common. As we were just closing up that last bit there talking about stress and health, uh, I was reminded that working for VAR, maybe particularly, is that you want to prioritize yourself. That That is important to do, but it's just, it's really hard when you get all these stresses and pressures on your time and you got to go here and you're flying there and you're driving to this other place and you got this meeting and then there's this webinar thing you're supposed to do and you got certs to do. It can be very difficult to prioritize yourself. You end up prioritizing anything but yourself and your health can suffer. But if at all possible, you want to do your best to to keep yourself at the top of that list. Keep your health good. Don't gain too much weight. It's really hard to lose. Take it from me. It's really hard to lose the weight that you gain. So again, if you're thinking about working for a VAR, ask those questions. Are there things that they offer you as an employee that are going to help you to prioritize yourself? What is the time off schedule like? Uh, What is the on-call rotation like? Just all depending on how that VAR is structured. Good questions to ask. Chris, what's on your mind? You know, just real quick, I thought there was a good point made by Eric on retaining the power as a customer. So, I mean, at the end of the day, buy what you want and don't worry about what the vendors necessarily think is best. You know, if it's a solution that's going to help you and you genuinely believe that, then push for it. And I think 
If those in leadership see that kind of passion for what it is and you can justify your design choices, people are going to follow along. And if they don't, find a better place. Well, we talked about the good. We talked about the bad. So how about the ugly? I think some people listen to this. It all sounds ugly, guys. It all sounds ugly. I'm running away scared. But well, it's about to get worse. Buckle up, kids. <laughs> so, okay. Jeez. One of the worst things about working for a VAR for me was some of the salespeople I had to deal with. Now, if you're a salesperson listening to this, just block your ears, turn away. We're not talking about you, obviously. It's all the other salespeople. But man, there was a guy I worked with who would brag to as many people as would listen to him about the fact that he did this great big sale of, uh, of hardware and equipment over list where he sold over list where it was typical to get 30 points or 40 points off of list. He sold over list to this customer and bragged about it. The customer didn't know and he would say, ah, this customer, they, they basically bought him a trip for his family to uh, some tropical island, Aruba or something he went to. And would just he, – that was like his thing. He wanted to screw the customer if at all possible by charging them as much as he could get away with. The guy was just nasty. I, uh, I don't know if – I mean not all salespeople are that way for sure. I have definitely worked with some nice folks. But this guy was not one of them. And sometimes you get paired up with these people. Ugly. Eric, I don't know if you had that kind of an experience or not. No, I, I had a very similar experience. I've met those people. I mean Chris put it pretty well earlier where it was all bro hugs and – handshakes like that's that's how they thought that they were going to seal every deal you didn't get that feeling that they advocated for you with the manufacturer like it's hard to describe but you can tell when the salesperson you're dealing with is actually on your side and is actually working in your best interest other times it's like oh we need to sell this we need to close it this week i'll do whatever i can do oh you need another point off that i can get that and how about a steak dinner on friday uh okay like <laughs> <laughs> how did the steak dinner just factor into things what's going on yeah. right now you can definitely feel the difference between being sold to and being sold with you know like so being sold to is where you just feel like getting the po cut is the goal of the engagement whereas being sold with is the po being cut is simply a milestone within the project that sales wants to support you on to be successful in whatever it is you're trying to build. And there's certainly, there's going to be a disengagement period. You know, the sales rep's not obviously going to like babysit having the head swap done for a storage array or something like that, but they should be invested, looped in, you know, like they should actually be part of that process of building the success versus I'm going to just check in when we need to, you know, end a quarter and the rest of the year, you'll never see me. At the end of the year, you'll see me. I think people can tell pretty. Yeah pretty reasonably when you're when you're just being bamboozled for like moolah versus finding someone that wants to do business for a longer term you know someone that wants to work with you the whole time yeah and those over the top people i think are hopefully they're somewhat rare anyway even though they're out there but i, I think maybe another point worth making is that sometimes these salespeople are comped in different ways to sell certain products and and so on and so they may push a certain solution because they're going to get comped better on it as opposed to whether or not it's the right technical answer. Yeah. Back to the multiple layers of the cake is you get salespeople at the VAR who work with certain salespeople at the manufacturer. And the salespeople at the manufacturer get comped in a certain way. So say they get comped on the 7 Series BMW, but not the 1 Series BMW. When you want to buy a 1 Series and you only need a 1 Series... If they keep pushing the 7 Series, odds are that someone along that chain is getting comped on the 7 Series. Hmm. 
Yep. That's fair. Let's move along. I mean, yeah, it's certainly certainly an ugly piece, especially when you think about how you as the either post-sales or, or, or pre-sales person have to deal with that. And how much do you want to change your design or change your implementation to meet that that kind of sliminess? All the storage array that's like... Feel your soul per- blackening. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Honestly, that's just part of the game. Uh, but I think something that maybe hits a little closer to home for post-sales is project management kind of the high level, everything that gets sold, there, there should be a PM assigned to it. And their job is to do the kickoff call, identify the stakeholders, you know, actually figure out the schedule to install, configure, make sure everything's signed off for test plans, all that jazz. I think the biggest challenge that I want to tickle your brain on, Eric, is, you know, like, have you had to deal with bad PMs that are just bad at juggling all these things or scheduling you to the point where things are just getting crazy and you're like, I have to be in two different cities in the same day. That's not possible. You know? Oh yeah, I've I've had them where, you know, you'll schedule two projects back to back, no time in between them. You're they're twelve hours apart or maybe plane flights apart, and they have one going till five p.m. on one day, and you gotta be at the next one at eight a.m. the next day. It's like, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to make it between those two? And what if I didn't finish the first one before I go to the second one? Now I have to field questions or try to do some sort of greasy handoff to another engineer, which never looks good to the customer when they have odds are more of a junior guy come in and he's trying to take over and he has no idea what he's doing. So he keeps asking you questions. So it becomes a very hectic and stressful time if that's what's going on. And you're trying to, of course, keep track of your billable hours. Which time do you bill to which customer when, in fact, you're working on two or even three accounts at the same time? Yeah, I had one of our double and triple bill in those situations. <laughs> well, it also comes down to how the operations team and how the, the post sales team is run. You know, like most places I worked, we wouldn't do we wouldn't do less than a day. Maybe a half a day was the smallest increment of billing. Just to make sure that everything was above board. Like, look, you're going to get me for four hours. That's what the cost is. Like, I don't do anything smaller than that. You know, we were never encouraged to double bill or do anything goofy like that because it's just not the way you should run a business. So no, definitely want to interview, like, who's running operations, who's running all the billable work, you know, the, the COO or whatever it is, that, depending on the, the size of the bar that it is. And that's really a linchpin person on the PS side. Mm-hmm. And uh, their their ethics and morals are going to really drive how the operations team does their, their business. Oh yeah. And that and it comes down from the top. You know, if people are willing to have uh, flexible morals in certain situations, the double dipping, that's kind of stuff happens a lot. So you get situations like certification parking, where someone who's not really using their cert or assigning that certification to a particular partner, Hey, I'll pay you and rent your certification and uh, use it at the VAR here, even though you don't actually work here. Or saying, I don't care what it takes, you need to pass this cert because we have to have a certified person on staff. So fine, download the brain dumps and get all the answers to the questions just so you can pass the test. I don't really care if you actually know things. Just get the cert that says you do because we need that and so on. That kind of stuff is – if you're an ethical person and that's being forced down on you by an owner or you know someone who's a partner you know in the business that's frustrating because you don't want to you want to play by the rules and yet they're changing the rules on you yeah that's yeah. why like when we talk the bad versus the ugly the bad is like annoying and stressful and you know just like the life the ugly is the stuff that you kind of you have to kind of figure out where the lines in the sand are drawn in your soul like yeah. and it sounds like I'm being a little fluffy but realistically it's like what am i willing to kind of give into and what am I going to hold, hold firm on and say, like, no, this isn't right. 
Yeah. And that's why I think that's the ugly. Where's your ethical boundaries is the difference between bad and ugly because I worked at a larger VAR and when the VCP5 came out, one of the guys down by me got it and he's like, hey, you know, sent an email out. First email back was from some guy. He's like, where'd you find the brain dump for that? (laughs) It started a huge (laughs) huge change between all the engineers about how real engineers actually study and can pass and other ones don't just study a brain dump. But but the fact that the question was asked talks about how commonly such a thing is found because it was apparently just not even a thing for him to think about asking the question. No, to like everybody in the engineering group. So it's like, all right, well, we know how most of you guys are getting your certification. <laughs> That's why it's part of the ugly, right? Because there's also, uh, I like the five whys. You know, everything you ask why to get to the root of the problem. It may not be that they necessarily agree with the whole brain dump thing, but their bosses said, okay, you've got these 20 certs to get in six months of which... Yeah. 18 of them, you don't even use that technology. Like, that's not an excuse, but it's certainly driving the behavior and it's kind of underneath. I don't know in your situation what it was, but I've seen it where people are like, I need a brain dump because I literally can't do this many technologies that are being asked on me. And it's like, well, then you need to push back. And those are hard conversations to have. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. I've I've seen messages come out where it's like, oh, vendor X is telling us we need to be to this level certification by three, four months from now, I don't care how you guys get it, divvy it up and get it done. They don't, they don't want to know how. Yeah. (laughs) Cause the vendors sometimes too, they'll just say like, you know, I don't, don't, don't ask, don't tell, just get it. And they literally open the door saying they don't even care, you know, and that's, that's a bummer too. Mm Mm-hmm. All that just to, you can get a few more points because if you're – I know back in the Cisco world it was if you were so many CCNPs and CCIEs and so on on staff, you could go from the specialist level up to like a silver level and then a gold level. I don't know how they structure it now. I think it might be kind of similar. But the higher you got, the more more of a point break you got and so the more margin you could get on a sale. And margins are pretty tight when you work for a VAR a lot of times. So that can make a big difference. When you have a $30 million book of business and they're telling you you can earn another three percentage points on that, mm. business really doesn't care how you do it. It's another question here. I mean, uh, with uh, as you'd walk into customers, Eric, how did the customers perceive you? I mean, a lot of times was it, you know, it's a relationship and we're happy and we love you because you add value or is it – Eh, I don't like you so much because if I could just deal direct, I think I could get the whole solution yeah. cheaper. I can definitely tell you when you get into the larger enterprises and the bigger organizations, there's just a, a hint of the fact that everyone hates you. I mean, <laughs> wow, harsh. The customer thinks you're just a middleman driving up the price. The vendors see you as unnecessary because they've worked this relationship. They've, in some cases, spec the solution put together the bill of materials and everything. So they don't know why you're even involved in here. And then also if you're a larger entity, like you've worked with a lot of VARs and you've worked with a lot of bad VARs. So you've, you've been like conditioned to this. VARs are bad. Why are you here? What, what, where's the V like, what value are you providing me? It's hard for a VAR to break through that, you know, and coming back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, it's, it comes down to like that, to me, it's that salesperson's relationship with the manufacturer is where I really feel that the VAR is advocating for me. If I don't get that feeling from my VAR salesman to the manufacturer, I really, like, why are you here? So a lot of the work that I did was consulting. So I, I wasn't really pre or post. It's kind of in the middle somewhere. 
it's pretty much you're showing up with maybe two or three colleagues into a room of 10 to 20 customers that all don't want to be there and kind of like, uh, they got to, you know, you're there to help solve a problem, obviously. So there is a problem. And it kind of, to me, it was like going on a date with 20 people at the same time who are kind of not interested in you. Right. It's, so it's a lot, it's, it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of like being extroverted. It's a lot of, you know, understand, being able to read expressions and body language and really attacking the root of the problem as soon as possible, showing some value. It's tough. Speed dating with people who don't want to be there. <laughs> well, guys, I think we've beat this thing up enough. We've come to the end of our Data Knots podcast, the good, the bad, the ugly of VARs. And uh, Eric, if you would, would you let people know how they can find you on the internet if you tweet or have a blog or anything else that uh, that you'd like to share with folks? Sure. I have a blog that I have even posted on yet. Thought I'd get into it. It's ericgullickson.com. And then on Twitter, you can find me at ericgullickson. EricGullickson.com and on Twitter at Eric Gullickson. All right. Thank you very much for taking your time. This was uh, <laughs> this was fun and horrible to record this show. And everyone, that is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me. I'm at AC Banks on Twitter, and I write over at PacketPushers.net and record several other podcasts at the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter or via his blog, wallnetwork.com. And, and hey, for all the shows that we've done in the Data Knot series about infrastructure engineering, head on over to packetpushers.net. All the episodes are there. We talk about containers and conferences, certifications, uh, PowerShell, Kubernetes, uh, moving to cloud, uh, full-stack engineering. Is that really a thing or not? Storage architectures and, and really a lot of things. So much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your career choices be wise, and your cables be cleanly managed. Yeah, in, in my bar workings, I couldn't phrase that any more awkwardly. <laughs> in my bar working, I bar very hardly. <laughs> yeah.